And it's not until you realize you start connecting the dots that your efforts were important from day one. Good morning. It's a very rainy Sunday morning, and it's springtime. My next guest is Cynthia Lee Heim, and we met a long time ago when I wore a yellow leotard to my very first New York City audition. It was always my dream to work with Bob Fosse, and when he died my sophomore year in college, I was devastated. I was actually changing out of a leotard in my tiny dorm room, and I had a little TV, and the news was on, and it said that Bob Fosse had passed away from a heart attack in Washington, D.C., while he was mounting a revival of Sweet Charity, starring Donna McKechnie as Charity. I wanted to work with him so badly. I loved him. I loved Gwen Verdon. That summer, there was an opportunity for me to attend a workshop at Stony Brook University, not far from where I grew up on Long Island, and Gwen Verdon was there, her daughter Nicole Fossey was there, and the late Chris Chadman was there. So I went to this workshop, and it was a three-hour dance class, and they taught us some work. It was the first time I had seen someone wear character heels. Nicole Fossey was in a black leotard and black leg warmers and heels, and she said to me, do you have character shoes? And I said, no, I'd never worn them before. I was in a university program, and we did modern, and we did ballet. Well, that fall, I got invited to go to an audition for a production of Damn Yankees at, in Darien, Connecticut. Bick Goss, a Fosse dancer and director, he was directing and Gwen Verdon was giving some input and assistance. And the audition was at Actors' Equity on 46th Street in New York City. I did not have my Actors' Equity card. I was not a member of the union. So I arrived at the audition and the person at the front desk wouldn't let me in because I didn't have an equity card. And I said, I was invited to this audition and they just wouldn't let me in. Finally, I wrote a note and asked him to give it to the people in the room. And the man was very reluctant to do so, but he did. And then Gwen Verdon herself came out of the room, came up to me and put her arm around me and said, she's with me. And she took me into the room. That was my very first experience at an audition. And you know, those memories that are just seared into your brain. I remember how the room smelled. I remember everything. And there I am in my yellow leotard. I don't think I had pink tights on. I think I had tan tights on, but the room almost was spinning. That's how jacked up on adrenaline I was. But there was a girl, young woman, who kind of guided me through the process, like motioned me to come over to her. And when we had a break, walked me out. And that girl was Cynthia Leheim. Welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. I am so happy to be here with Cynthia Leheim, a Broadway singer, dancer, actress, and Foley artist. She's also a voice teacher. Welcome, Cynthia. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Right before this interview, I did a little bit of an introduction and I talked about my first meeting with you. But let's talk about your upbringing. You are from Buffalo, New York. Is that correct? 
Yep, I'm from Buffalo. I was there until I left for SUNY Purchase. So I started this adventure, this dance adventure in Buffalo, New York at the Geraldine Hoffman School of Dance when I was four. And you also worked with a mutual friend, Roger Preston Smith. Is that correct? Roger, yes. He was my first dance partner in my first big show. And it was the the tour of Oklahoma with John Davidson. And Jamie Farn, it's so funny because I was just checking my email messages and uh, John Davidson had put a, a blurb on there because he's in New Hampshire and he has this new club uh, called Club Sandwich because it's in Sandwich, New Hampshire. So it's so funny that you said Roger because there's a complete connection to John Davidson. John Davidson has a club. This is great news. Yes, and he, you know, he's always been a singer-songwriter guy, and he's turning 80 this year, which blows my mind. And he looks- yeah, but he's one of, yeah, he's one of those people, like, you're going to be like this, too. You could be, like, 90, and people will think you're, like, 50. You know what I mean? As long as we wear turtlenecks. <laughs> Cynthia, my neck. I have to wear scarves, too. I'm like, uh, I heard. Bras would stop that, but I guess not. I heard you can do a laser, but. You know, right now, being COVID times, I'm just like, throw a scarf on and call it a day. I thought you went to dancing school with Roger. So no, is that okay? No, we, didn't, we didn't. I think we were talking about our dancing school days, probably, because I think we both started in dance school, you know, with the 15 minutes ballet, 15 minutes tap, 15 minutes baton until you know we got into a school that was more serious but no I think that we have ties in common in Buffalo uh, I don't know if it was David DeMarie um, there's there's a there's a through line there somewhere but we didn't know each other because we're different ages as well so I have a feeling that he went through somewhere and then I followed year a little, years later I won't say how many I started in Buffalo with Geraldine Hoffman and then when I was about nine the ballet teacher I had at the time said, you need to go to a, you know, a more concentrated school. So I went to American Academy of Ballet and that started the whole real ballet thing. And you went to Purchase, which is a great program. Yeah, it really was. It was great. It was a lot of modern and a lot of ballet and modern was new to the ballerinas. Serious modern, Lamone, Cunningham, what else? Um, Graham, lots of Graham, intense. Yeah. I studied, I studied with people that we're in the May O'Donnell company and May O'Donnell was a Graham dancer and May O'Donnell broke away from Graham and then they studied under her. So it's interesting how it's like a big family tree where I teach now, they've actually incorporated that image in the dance history classes. They have everybody research who their teachers studied with. Mm -hmm. And then we all find common links Because we all know each other. Like there's, we're just like a separation of a couple of degrees from knowing each other, you know? How soon after your purchase graduation, did you move directly to New York after that? I did. I moved right to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, before it was a cool place to live with my friend, Michael San Giovanni, who ended up being my brother-in-law because I married his brother. Um, And so I just started waiting tables at Charlio's right off the bat, having never waited a table in my life. Can you imagine like waiting tables in New York? Having never done that before. 
But I remember when I met you, you told me you had that job at Charlie O's. <laughs> I remember meeting you so clearly. I remember our first interaction because I think we were both, I know we were doing um, a Darien Dinner Theater audition, but was it for Damn Yankees? It was for Damn Yankees. And I did a little intro and I explained how I had done a dance workshop with Gwen Verdon and Nicole Fossey and the late Chris Chadman. And from that... I had already had headshots and they took our headshots. And then I got a call inviting me to this audition and I was not a member of Actors Equity. So I had some trouble getting in to the bill, getting into the audition space. Mm -hmm. And the guy at the desk was not letting me in. And then I got him to pass a note to the room and Gwen herself came out and got me. It was crazy. But I will, I do remember so clearly how overwhelmed I was because I had never been, it was my first audition. I was still in school. Uh huh. I was still in school and I was a junior in college and I was in a heavily ballet modern program too. And this was theater dance. This was jazz, you know, damn Yankees choreography. You were really nice to me in the room. There were some legends in that room, you know, some very famous dancers in that audition and you kind of like, kind of like herded me. Like I was like a little sheep, you know, a little lamb. You were like, come here. You were more like, because <laughs> you were in pale yellow. I so remember your leotard. So you were yes. like, <laughs> I had this yellow leotard on. I don't know why I wore yellow, but I did. And um, looked, yeah, you were super, but. I said, I remember that it looked really good. So it was a good choice. Thank you. But you were nice to me and we chatted and then the audition ended. And then later on, you and I got to work together for the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. That was Maine, yes? That was the first yes. time Yes. Mid-1990s. And you, you and I were one of four women in the ensemble. Or was it five? Uh, you know what? It might have been five because I'm thinking about how the tango was blocked. I think it was three couples, two couples. So it was probably five women and five guys. And we were at the Oakwood Apartments. Isn't that where we stayed? Yep. And those were good places to stay because they were fully furnished, a walk to the theater. And I love Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a great city. It's a great walking city. And we had, I mean, I actually have had the opportunity to work at Walnut Street, or not in Walnut, but in Philly at holiday time, three times. And it's such a great place to be at Christmas because my husband and I always say, it's small enough that the whole city is decorated. Manhattan is so huge that you'll get pockets of decorations, but I feel like all of Philly is decorated at Christmas time, and it's it's very it's more intimate. And it was always just a magical place to be at Christmas. Not only that, but we were doing a show, so that's magical in itself because you're always so lucky to get the show. So it was a great time. I was at Walnut twice at that time, and then once I was coming through with Showboat, and we played the. What's, I'm kind of, not the forest. Was it the forest? Maybe the forest. Yes, the forest is in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yes. And that's a great theater too. Yeah. Um, so you got to work with Susan Strollman. I did. You know, I had, I had done the Showboat tour. Well, I had auditioned for Showboat in New York and called in and auditioned and just never got the gig for whatever reason, thousands of reasons. But then I went in to audition for the tour. And I believe Stroll was at, she was involved in auditions, but Nikki Harris is the one that put it all together. So I didn't really get to know Stroh at that point. But when I auditioned for Music Man on Broadway, she knew who I was. And so that was a big advantage, I think. 
And then, of course, worked with her a lot in Music Man. Yes. And that is something I really want the listeners to know, that your efforts might not appear fruitful in the moment. For example, when you get released from the audition, when you get cut. But if people get to know you over time, down the road, if there's a show, they will put you in the show because by then they know you. Absolutely. And when people say it's who you know, it's really not that simple. It's more like who knows you and your work ethic and your level of respect for the people that you're working with. My first audition for an equity theater was was Darian and it was for Guys and Dolls and I was waiting tables and the bartender said she was going to go to this audition. Come with me. I was like, okay. Because I was still taking ballet class and kind of figuring myself out. And she and I, well, I took the train out there to Darien, thought I had a great audition and didn't get the job. And a couple months later, I got a call to be a replacement. And so that was my introduction into equity theater. And it was because I went to the audition and did a really good job. And at the time, you feel like, oh, man, what was that all for? But it follows you. And it's not the first time that I was a replacement in a show. And it was based on somebody that already knew my work or had already seen my audition. So, you know, when you don't get calls, I mean, when you don't get auditions, it's not the end of the line by any means. Because our job is to go to the audition and present ourselves the best way that we can and walk out of there with your head high feeling good about what you did because it's not a defeat in any way, shape, or form. It, it, you should really think of it as groundwork. You may go to 10 auditions and, do, and be fabulous and not get anything, but all of a sudden, in the months or years later, you're getting things because of what you did in the room. And so that's encouraging to people because nobody said that to me at the time. I just was like, oh man, I'm not getting any work. And it's not until you realize, you start connecting the dots that your efforts were important from day one. Day one. So... That's one of the reasons I have this podcast, because there's so much of the business side of this. We really are the CEOs of our own little company, and the company is ourselves. We represent ourselves. Sure, later on, we could get an agent or a manager, but in the beginning, it's just you. And often, we're walking blind. Often, we're just like, well, I guess I'll go. And it's like um, that movie, Sliding Doors. I talked about this with Larry Blank. Every choice you make defines the rest of your life. Like every choice you make, what if you didn't go to that audition? You never would have booked the gig. And what if you um, didn't audition for Showboat? You wouldn't have gotten the Broadway show Music Man. So it's so funny. Absolutely. It, you, you, uh, you're building something from day one. And, you know, we're only in control of our own product. So... It's another life lesson that every everyone should hear in the beginning because I think it would help them so much that you're only in control of your product. So it's your business to be the very best, the very trained, very most trained you can be, the most respectful you can be in the audition space, um, the kindest you can be. Kindness goes a long way. It really does. You may not even realize you're being kind or respectful, um, but you have to put that effort out because the people around you see that. And, and in this business, it takes one bad word to keep you from getting jobs, which I've seen, I've observed. So your job is to work hard and be respectful. And you learn a lot by doing that too. You know, keep your eyes. I just, I was saying this in my intro too, that there are people I have met that won't be guests on the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. Mm -hmm. 
the people that I've had on so far are the people that I remember standing out as being kind, just, you know, and I, I loved working with you at Walnut street. And then we would run into each other countless times on the street. And I used to love when your little girl was with you because you, you have a daughter and I have a daughter and there's just something so magical about this part of our lives. And how old is your daughter now? Sophie is 13. She's in eighth grade. It's crazy that she's going to be a freshman next year. And your daughter is how old? She'll be 20. It's crazy. That's crazy because we're not old enough for that. But I remember when you had your daughter, it was before we had Sophia. And I was like, oh, she's a mom. Oh, my gosh. It just felt like such a foreign and fabulous and intimidating thing to be. And I was always like, oh, I thought I revered you because I thought that was so amazing. But I've had so much fun bringing her into the city. You know, Kyle and I have both brought Sophia in because she does this. She's been a print model since she was four. So, and, and doing her musicals in school and playing piano and trumpet and karate and ice skating and ballet and tap. And because we have one and we can do that. We, she just does everything possible because her brain's soaking it all in at this age until you start yeah. little things down. But yes, we have a lot of things in common that way. Well, I don't know about you, but I really felt um, I felt the beating of the biological clock like a drum in my body. And a lot of people said, why are you having a daughter this early? And this early was not early. I was 32. So, yeah, it's a great age. I wanted to do it before all of the advanced testing. After a certain age, you have to get a lot more, you know, it's a high, higher risk. Yeah. Um, but did you hear about the woman who just had a baby at age 57? You know, you're, it's interesting because the, I've heard this before that women's bodies can carry babies. It's just like, it's going to be a little more of a challenge. And then you're really old and you're not going to be around that long. But biologically, sometimes the bodies can just, they can grow the babies. 50 yeah, I wouldn't. Mm, I, at this age, I would not really want to do it. I, f I feel like I had a really good experience. Do you think she will want to be a, a performer when she grows up or you don't know yet? I pretty much absolutely. And she has, she has declared that over and over. And interestingly enough, and if she's listening, she'll be like, mom. But um, she said she wants to be the kind of actress. She's going to kill me. That, um, she's going to kill me. That has her hair up all day and then takes it down at night and writes in her journal like the, the actresses do on Masterpiece Theater. I love to hear things like this. And then she's second generation performer and she's been already working since she was a child. So that's good also because if you are this personality type, it just feels like home to you to be around other people on a set or in a rehearsal space. I miss performing, but actually I miss rehearsing more. I, I totally understand that. It's the camaraderie. And you know what I miss? I miss the dressing room. Our, my friend Lisa Gennard, who she was a rockhead at age 16 and never stopped. She actually lives five minutes from here, which is so great. And Barbara Foltz, who I mentioned your name yesterday, and Barb and you have worked together. Um, yes, and I've worked with Lisa too, by the way. Oh, okay. She and I did Norb. We did Norb's Beauty and the Beast at Main State. And Lisa is a phenomenal dancer. Mm -hmm. and a phenomenal person. So please say hi for me to both of them. 
when you're in a dressing room, I mean, if you're if you're doing a principal role, it's not quite as exciting because you're you're by yourself unless you go visit, which is a good thing to do. Go visit the chorus room, but in the dressing room, it keeps you witty. It, it's you know you're always one-upping each other you're laughing so much and it sharpens your comedy skills because you're kind of entertaining each other the whole evening in the dressing room and I kind of miss that that skill that that edginess that ability to hold the attention of a room it, and that's what I felt the dressing room always was because you know you got a row of clothes in between you and you're talking back and forth from one side of the room to the other making each other laugh and I miss that yeah I, I love the dressing room as well for those people that haven't been in a show there's a whole other show that happens backstage while you're sitting in your seat watching the performance the performance is happening, but then there's so much going on and I miss all the stagehands and the musicians. It's an experience. I'm so grateful that I was able to have so many opportunities to be in pieces. And my next move, Cynthia, is I'm thinking I might start a theater company. That's That would be a dream. Kyle always talks about us retiring and starting a theater company somewhere. I think that's a brilliant idea because the best qualified people to start a theater company are the ones that were thespians. You know, you, you have to really understand it inside and out. And I think the best directors, producers, everything are the ones that were actors or at least were trained as actors. Yeah. Oh, that's I'm behind you. Tell me what you need. Right now I'm in just in the dreaming stage of it. I'm trying to think, do I want to go nonprofit? My favorite era are those variety shows, the Judy Garland at hour where I, I would like to turn this podcast into something like that, where I open with a number and then sit down with a guest and talk. And then maybe we do a number together. I don't know. Oh, yeah. You know, we always talk about those holiday shows and oh, they were so magical. I think people have tried to do them. Uh, I remember talking. Um, I worked with uh, Florence Henderson. I was her backup singer for year, for about six years. She had an autobiographical cabaret show that we did around the country. And our musical director, Glenn Roven, and I used to always talk about resurrecting that kind of show. And we missed our chance because they're gone. But we always thought she would be the perfect, she would be the perfect headliner for one of those kinds of shows. She knew everybody. It would have been so magical. But I think that that needs to definitely be resurrected. We've seen it attempted and, and not, it's, it's not gone as well. I mean, I'm thinking about Perry Como's holiday special and of course Judy Garland. That stuff's timeless and even even our generation can appreciate that. You know, it is a throwback, but I feel like at least our generation and hopefully our kids really love that classic entertainment that it's just so great. And we're, you know, we're towards the end of knowing what that whole world was. So I hope that we can move it into the next generation. We we talk about classical music that way too. You know, usually the audience, when you go to see the orchestra here at, at the NJ Pack, they're older for the most part. But when we do see younger families bringing their kids, we're like, oh, I hope we can move this forward so that the next generation appreciates the classical music because it's, it's a bit of a dinosaur, but it's all so timeless because it's lasted this long and no doubt it's going to keep going on in the future. I just, I'm putting my trust in the next generation that they're going to keep appreciating the classics that way. Building an audience is a big part of having something and building a fan base of people that want what you have, which I find that using social media, I've been, when we first got on lockdown, I went on in 
Instagram Live and all of my students in New York were sent home all over the world. So I started appearing on Instagram Live and doing dance classes. I found that it was a way to connect with everybody. So maybe incorporating some of these performances, like perhaps live streaming them while you're on a stage or perhaps making some sort of filmed little commercial for them. Live performances are not back yet, but I feel perhaps this summer people are going to start doing some outdoor things. What do you think about that? I actually was going to say when you said are on their way back, um, the, the warmer weather is a perfect opportunity to get things up and running because you you gather people, they wear their masks, and they can be distant in a big grassy knoll, and you, you have at it. You know, daytime performances if you don't have a big budget. But I, the next town over has been doing outdoor shows with their kids' theater programs, and they did it in the cold weather, too. Everyone was there in their winter coats watching these kids do their presentation. So I think the warmer weather is going to give us the opportunity to get people performing again. I mean, there are outdoor venues, but you can kind of make anything an outdoor venue, frankly. That's that's step number one. And once everybody's vaccinated, I think we'll be able to start getting people back into a theater space. I think the biggest concern is the performers because they aren't going to be socially distant. So that's that's the biggest concern right now. You know, audience members want to show, but we have to think about the safety of the performers first. Actors were not the most respected group of people throughout history. But uh, I think that's different now. And I think that the thing that's going to take the most time is making sure that the performers are safe. Yeah. Dancers want to dance and they, they, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to stop. I always say dancers, you know, they work the hardest, they're the lowest on the totem pole and they will pay to work practically. And I say, don't, don't, you know, know your worth. Do you still audition? Are you still performing? You know, I haven't been. I, I stopped going to dance calls because that's just, you know, I stopped going to the dance calls quite a while ago. Shortly after Music Man, I'd have to say I would only dance if they made me because I was in a different mindset at that point. After having done Mary and I was like, I enjoy swinging. I'm also a nervous wreck swinging, but I don't know if I want to swing anymore. And then I also was like realizing, you know, at the time, I think I was only 35, but I was feeling the difference from the 25 year olds in, in a, you know, in a, in a dance situation and the dance started to change. And I'm sure you saw this too. I'm well-trained, but I don't do gymnastics and I don't do the kind of modern dancing that they were asking for in the auditions where, I don't know, all of a sudden you had to do this back walk over thing from the floor I just I'm not trained in that kind of movement and if you watch so you think you can dance these kids are amazing and it's a different kind of training they do have all of the gymnastics and the upper body strength to do these things that are asked of them so I could see that that wasn't my place anymore and I I didn't want to do it anyway at that point I was going in because it was um, an appointment but I then just started going to singer calls and got some jobs because they already knew that I could dance and, and was cast and then was told, oh, by the way, you're going to be in the corps de ballet. And I was like, what? Why? And the answer was because you can. Um, but I felt it. I felt the difference. And yeah. uh, you're always going to have to be a dancer. You're just, even if you're the lead, look at Music Man. Um, the Shapubi number, we all danced from Marion on down. Everybody danced. Um, so you're always going to have to, when you, as an actor, you always have to stay in shape. I love dancing. I, the only exercise that feels good to me is a ballet bar, frankly. That will always be my choice of exercise. And it just feels good. You know, as a once a dancer, you're always a dancer. And 
as I'm teaching voice, everything is, is connected to how I would describe dance because there is this through line and that's where I come from. So I find these these comparisons to, I'll give you a real short one. When we do a releve, what we do to releve is we push down into the ground. Okay, you don't just think about floating up into the air, you push down into the ground and that's where your stability is. Makes sense, right? Well, when I'm teaching voice and I'm trying to get them to approach a high note from underneath, I kind of use that same analogy. You push down on your support to get the note to go up. And so I find all of these things that are directly directly related to my dance training because it is kind of a universal mindset. I feel like dance is like the basis to everything because we move, people move. Even if you're not a dancer, you're moving and movement is dance. So I actually just did a lecture on how dance informs everything else in your life. And so I'm just grateful that we have that as a basis to our lives. You know, dance is everything, right? I can't stop. I've, I've tried to stop and be a regular non-dancing person, but I couldn't. So now I've just like accepted it. And I recently got in really good shape thanks to my friend Kathleen Carter. And being in physical shape and being in good shape with a strong core makes all the difference in the world to me. I just, I'm, I'm no longer in pain and I can, I can move. And I noticed it a couple of weeks ago, I went out and visited my family. Everyone's vaccinated. And I have a four going on five-year-old nephew and we were running around and rolling around. And I was like, didn't even think about it. We were on the ground getting up. And to me, that is why I stay in shape just so I can have that mobility and not, not be like, oh, Aunt Michelle can't play with you because it hurts her to get up off the floor. <laughs> no, it's true. And you know, like, Three days ago, Sophia and I were out on the deck and she was doing cartwheels. And so I was doing my cartwheels and didn't know how the first one go. But yeah, if you stay in shape, you can still do that kind of stuff. I don't want to be crispy. And cartwheels, that's yeah. good. <laughs> one time crispy is a good word for it. Yeah, yeah you got to stay limber. You got to stay fluid. Fluid. I think that's a common word for the kids these days, staying fluid. So, so you still have a lot of time with Sophia at home. Lucky. I, I FaceTime with my daughter on a regular basis. I just miss the camaraderie and I do miss making sandwiches. I have to tell you, it's like, you know, I feel like, oh, well, what do I do now? So I'm trying to take the time that I spent raising the kids into more creative pursuits. But you're still in the trenches. You still have a little bit to go. You have the high school years. I do. But I also, I, I was never a person to think forward. Like ever, I just was sort of in the moment. And I think that's a ballet thing. I think you just, you don't think forward. You just concentrate on what you're doing. And you do your training. And you do it the best you can. As a matter of fact, my friend, um, everyone knows Robert John Leonard. I, I met him doing Music Man. He said to me once, oh, well, what did you dream about? And I said to him, I wasn't even thinking. I just said, I didn't dream I danced. <laughs> he was like, oh, I got to write that down. Because we didn't look forward. I never, it's weird. I didn't have goals. I didn't have goals. People are like, well, what did you dream about? Honestly, I just took my dance classes. And maybe that's a dancer thing. We just did what we were doing at the moment the best we could because there wasn't any room for anything else. But it paid off because when we got to New York, we were we were the trained ones, you know. But thinking forward, I do stop and think. I'm very aware of the fact that when she's not in the house, I am going to have time. And I'm already thinking about the fact that I need to think about that. You know what I mean? I need to be prepared to either delve into, delve back into things. Yeah, because I know that's going to be a bit of a shock to the system. 
I think with social media now, though, we will be in much more communication than when I think back about when I was at Purchase and my mom and dad and I would call once a week and send letters back and forth because there was no phone and there was no email. And that's crazy. My mom and dad had some serious empty nest. They just didn't hear from us, you know, once a week. That's crazy. And I see Kyle's sisters with their kids and they communicate every single day because they can, because they just send an email. I mean, how great would that have been? That's crazy. But I do look, yeah. not forward, well, yay, but I look forward. Um, I look into the future about having that time and being well aware that I better have a plan. But, you know, since there haven't been any auditions for anyone right now, it's actually a reset for everybody going, okay, what do I want to do? What can I do? How am I going to do? So it's been interesting. It's been weird. And I don't know if you felt this way too, but to not have to think about auditions or not have to feel badly that you weren't looking for auditions. It's very strange. It was sort of like a reset button. For me, it took, I I had so much pressure on myself to jump back into the entertainment industry as a performer. I mean, while my daughter was growing up, I was teaching and directing and choreographing, but I told myself when she went to college, I would start acting again and performing. And so for me, this pandemic gave me just like a calm it down because I was all every day, if I wasn't looking or didn't have an audition, I felt bad. I felt like I wasn't working hard enough. I promised myself I'm not going to panic about it. Good. I don't, I don't think that it helps anything. It really does the outcome, I don't think. I mean, you're either, you know, focused and engaged or you're not, and the panic is going to be there or not. It's not going to change it. So maybe we can approach it more as a, let's see, what's appropriate me for, what's appropriate for me to get seen for? I, now that I've got the ring light, I'm all, I'm totally into figuring out how to do my submissions for things. And I don't have representation right now. I had it for a long time and then I didn't. And I actually got both of my Broadway shows without submissions going to dance chorus calls. And then I was working with someone and now I'm not. And so it's, you know, it's on me. If I want to do it, I used to panic when I got a call from my agency that I had an, I'd panic instead of going, yay, I have an audition. I'd go into full out panic. But now I think that if it's motivated by me, I'd be excited about it because I'd be choosing the projects and I'd be choosing if I was going to audition from them or not. And so maybe it's going to be a whole different mindset. And also as we get older, we go, you know what, let's try to keep things in perspective because yeah, that'd be a great job. And if you don't get it, there's going to be another job later. There's not as much desperation. And you know, you yeah. just, it's, it's, you get wiser as you get older, hopefully, you know, and, and, you know, if I was going to say something to someone, I'd ha I'd have to say to not let the people you're auditioning for value or devalue you, you know, I love this. Yeah. Can you talk about this a little bit more? Yeah. Because this is something that we all, it took us all a long time to learn. Absolutely. And the best example before, you know, right off the bat is that I was auditioning for something pretty early on, and they almost always would start with a ballet combination. And I was a ballet dancer by trade. So I did the dance audition and I got caught. And all I could think of is like, wow, I guess I'm not a good enough ballet dancer, which was funny because that would have been the last thing that they would have been thinking. But um, I walked out of there thinking, oh, I should have done it better. 
I should have danced better. I must not be as good as I thought I was. And then you down the line, you look back and you go, that's just how it goes. They give you a ballet combination. Then maybe they'll call you back and give you a tap combination. Then maybe they'll give you a singing, uh, you know, a singing audition. And you might be great in all of those and still not get the job. And maybe it's because you were too tall or too short or too fat or too thin or, or you remind them of someone they didn't like. Or there's so many variables and you can't let their decision behind the table make you feel bad about yourself because I've been behind the table as well now and it gives you a whole different perspective. They might walk in and be fabulous, but they're just not right for what you need to fill in. It's a puzzle for them. You know, they have to put all the pieces into this puzzle and some of those really good pieces aren't gonna fit and that's okay. But nobody tells you that and maybe they do tell you that, but you still have to live it. Maybe you still yeah. feel all the feels because, um, you know, you could give them all a rule book, but maybe you just have to experience it. But the really important thing is that, and I said it earlier, you can only control your product. You can't control how it's received. So yes, you be at the top of your game. That's your job. Be at the top of your game. But if you don't get the jobs, it may have something to do with what you did in the room, but it very well may have nothing to do with what you did in the room. So all you can do is be as fabulous as you can be. I think learning to handle disappointment is good as a human being also, because um, some people raise their children, I call them helicopter parents. They don't want their kids to experience any kind of disappointment or pain. And I'm not saying like throw your kids into the deep end of the pool, but learning how to be a resilient human is a very valuable skill. And I think that in our years of auditioning, I think we, we became strong people because we were able to do what we did and do it again and again and again. And sometimes we got the gigs and sometimes we did not. Yeah. And I don't think that actors know how strong they are because, you know, we, we are our own boss and we're our own accountant and we're our own everything you know we we rely on ourselves and i think because it's our it's our nature to want to be better we we forget how strong we are which is such a such a great thing to take into any other part of your life you know to take into a relationship to take into child rearing to take into another business you might move into you know how many dancers, actors, singers have moved into other areas and had no idea they were so schooled, so skilled or schooled, I suppose. You know, you will hear time and time again about people that have hired ex-dancers or, or ex-singers, dancers, actors, performers in general. They're such hard workers and they're problem solvers and they've got personality for days. Sometimes people don't know what to do with that personality. But as far as being able to handle rejection, it is part of life in general. And I think we, as performers, probably handle it better than people outside of performing because we, you know, our jobs are short and repetitive and you have a lot of opportunity for refusal. <laughs> and we actually, you know, Sophia learned that at age four. She would go to uh, print auditions and she'd do her thing and she wouldn't get the job. And she felt it but she took it in stride right from the beginning she was never like upset she was always like well i guess they didn't need me or i guess so and so got it and we'd see like the parents would post their kids in their jobs you know once the print ads came out um you know and and then people would say 
the agencies would say, please try not to post like crazy when your kids get the job because there's other kids in the agency that didn't get the job. But on the same token, Sophia would see the kids that did get the gigs and be like, oh, okay. And that was a really great life lesson at a very early age. Sometimes you got it and sometimes you didn't. So, you know, if we could all start at four and five and get a life lesson, that'd be great because by the time we're out of college, we'd be able to handle it better, I suppose. Part of getting work is not getting work. Uh, Tom Bosley, who I worked with in Shovel, he was Captain Andy, was interviewed once. He had, he had done Fiorello. That was his first big show, and it was one of the longest-running shows. He was asked once later in life, are you looking forward to retirement? And he was like, I've not worked as long, longer than I've worked, so why would I retire? And it's true. Actors don't retire because we're still waiting for the next job. I know. I think I'm going to be like that. Estelle Getty in, Go- in Golden Girls. I'm going to try to be that oldest cast member and just work it out. Absolutely. I want to be Jessica Tandy. <laughs> oh, wasn't she so amazing? And her husband, Hume Cronin. I just thought they were the cutest things. They were, they were pretty old when you and I were in that early stage of our career. They were on Broadway. The Gin Game, I think they did. And I just remember them being stars on Broadway when we were auditioning in the 80s, 90s. Yeah. Yeah. They were just, you know, longevity in this field is, is amazing and probably somewhat elusive. But I think it boils down to work ethic and, and the fact that you've been a respectful and respected artist all through. I, I don't know. I always think about them because I just felt that they were elegant people. And so elegant. And Ossie Davis and Ruby D, they did so much work. I think all four lived quite a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're past now, but they all had long, long lives and careers. Cynthia, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk with us today. And you're always such an inspiration to me. I have cherished the time I've gotten to spend with you on and off stage. Well, that's more, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I want to publicly say thank you. Thank you from that little girl in the yellow leotard who was so overwhelmed and you were so nice to me that day. That goes a long way. And here we are many years later, still friends and still connected. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm honored that you asked me to be on. Thank you so much. You're amazing. How are you? Keep doing what you're doing. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, showgirl tip of day thanks for listening we'll see you again next week with a new episode Show.